Collective altruism is a moral theory that says we need to give as much money as possible to the most effective charities. Is this a harmless idea or a hyper-capitalist ideology that helps billionaires like Elon Musk launder their reputations? Hello, and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with my co-host, Kristen Pugh. On today's episode, we dig into a utilitarian-flavored philanthropic movement that has become really popular in Silicon Valley. Kristen doesn't get to dust off her PhD very often on this podcast, but she is actually an expert on philanthropy and inequality. So she has some thoughts that you'll want to stick around to hear. If you gain utiles from this conversation, please give us a five-star review on your preferred listening platform. All right, give her. Kristen, do you want to start by telling us what effective altruism is? So effective altruism is basically a set of ideas about giving that it's been promoted by a couple of utilitarian philosophers, and we'll talk a little bit more about who those people are, but it's become very popular, particularly in Silicon Valley, so that's why a lot of people are talking about it. Effective altruism has three essential components. So there's altruism, effectiveness, and also a concept called earning to give. So altruism, pretty simple. It is doing good. Specifically, effective altruists think about that in terms of increasing individual welfare. You know, because it's based on utilitarian philosophy, it's about maximizing utility. And specifically, effective altruists tend to focus on this idea of reducing pain and suffering when they're talking about what the good is that they're doing. Then there's the second component, which is effectiveness or doing the most good. And that involves, you know, sacrifice, right? So they say you should do a lot of good. But they want that sacrifice to be oriented specifically towards doing the most good that you can. Um, And for them, that is this sort of rationalist view of giving, essentially the idea that you should should do as much good as you can quantifiably prove, right? Um, So they want to see you use evidence to get as much good as possible out of the dollar that you're donating or, or whatever. And then the last concept associated with effective altruism is this idea of earning to give. And this is, I think, one of the more controversial ideas of effective altruism, although effectiveness also gets us into a lot of issues as well. But earning to give is essentially this idea that you should deliberately pursue a high earning career and to do that in order to donate a significant portion of your earnings. This idea is that like, Screw choosing a career for impact on its own. You should choose a high net worth career and then donate your money. And, you know, effective altruism, there are some debates around that within the movement, but it's an idea that had like was really sort of core to starting it. I'm not against effective altruism. So I think the focus is really on how big a problem is, how solvable a problem is and how neglected that problem is. Or I think that's what most proponents of effective altruism would like to focus on. And so that's like their easy sort of sales feature. I mean, maybe maybe I just hung out on the wrong websites and they have a really good marketing team, but... They do heavily advertise on Google. That was one thing I was struck by. <laughs> to, if you're researching effective altruism on Google, you have to go through like, you have to go through 10 ads before you can get to an actual article that's like, not promoted by big effective altruism. But anyway. Yes. No, no, no. And I think I I 100% agree. And I actually want to talk about that because we were having a discussion about this a couple of months ago because I had like four or five of my regular podcasts that I listened to featuring William McCaskill went on like a podcast guesting binge. And, And I just, I got so much effective altruism in my ears from various sources over the course of like a month or two that I had to like seek out <laughs> kind of like why why there's so much drama around it because I was like, oh, this just sounds great. So I think Tech Won't Save Us did a really good episode on long-termism, which is kind of like a subset of effective altruism that I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. But, you know, and we talked about it too, Kristen, a little bit, and you told me like what your feelings were about it and everything you said was absolutely true. But I also think that because Silicon Valley has kind of latched onto this idea so much, I think it's kind of poisoned the root idea of it, right? So if you have like a a shitty person who's a vegan and then you're like, well, all veganism is bad. I don't know. I think that's I think that's kind of like the rap that it's getting. I think at its core, don't laugh at me. 
No, sorry. I'm just laughing. It's it's a poignant example only because Peter Singer is also very famous for um, being like a philosopher of vegetarianism. So it's it's just a funny example. That was all. (laughs) Yes, it is true that I'm coming from a more skeptical place than you are. I've got many more critiques on the ledger than I do things that I think are good about effective altruism. Um, But I I do want to be, you know, charitable to effective altruism by, I think, sort of fairly explaining it in the terms that an effective altruist would. So let's let's talk a little bit about like the case that effective altruists would make for why their approach is a good one. So there are three arguments that I think are fundamental to an effective altruist's perspective on giving. The first one is that there are huge differences in the amount of good that can be done by different interventions. So they have this position that giving to charity, your $1 given to charity is not necessarily equal. It depends on where that $1 is going, how much good you're actually doing with that cause. So there is a moral difference from an effective altruist perspective to giving a dollar to charity, depending on what that charity is. So that's one thing that might differentiate effective altruism from other moral approaches like Kantianism, right? The second argument that builds upon that is that you can actually measure the differences between the content of giving. So from this perspective, one very famous example that William McCaskill has given is, you know, it costs, let's say, $50,000 to train one guide dog, or for that same $50,000, you can pay for surgery for several hundred people to prevent blindness, you know? So An effective altruist would say, don't pay for this guide dog, pay for these surgeries because that's more effective. And we could talk about that maybe being problematic. So the third argument that effective altruists promote is this idea that most people in rich countries are comparatively well off. And so people in poor countries are absolutely much poorer. And that means that you can actually get a pretty good bargain from giving in countries that are poorer, right? So this idea that you don't necessarily have to impoverish yourself to do a lot of good if you start looking at causes elsewhere. This is where I find effective altruism, maybe not in this framing, but I find it the most compelling, this idea that traditional charity is about proximity a lot of the time, right? It's about giving to things that are close to your values, close to your community, close to experiences um, that you have, right? You give to, to a cancer cause because you know somebody who has had cancer, you give to a school because you attended that school. And that there are inherent biases to those kinds of motivations for giving. And so effective altruists, what I find the most compelling about that is they say a human is a human is a human. Put an asterisk beside that because it's also very ableist and we'll talk more about that. But in terms of like the global north, global south argument, they're looking at individual lives as having the same unit value. And so this this sort of proximity debate I do find somewhat compelling. That's so funny because that's the one argument that like I'm the most squeamish about because I mean, I mean, I'm sure you'll agree with this, but it just feels like if you're not careful, it becomes white saviorism or like you're aiding organizations that maybe haven't been properly vetted that are causing more harm than good or you're just not helping the society that you're trying to in the way just because they're like, oh, because you have your own biases that you bring in. You're like, oh, well, they're they're having problems because they're not like me. So let me fund organizations that make them more like me, which is where you get like missionary services and stuff like that. Yeah, totally. Uh, (laughs) I don't think that's a problem that's inherent to effective (laughs) altruism or exclusive to it. (laughs) But yes, for sure. So let's maybe talk about who are the big names to know. We've already named dropped them, but I think it, it helps to give some context. You know, who's promoting these ideas and where did they come from? And so I would characterize there as being Peter Singer, William McCaskill are sort of the the two big thinkers behind effective altruism. And I would characterize Peter Singer as like generation one and William McCaskill as generation two, even though they put out their books on effective altruism at the same time. (laughs) But for Peter Singer, it was sort of the culmination of his work, or it was one culmination of his work anyway. I'm sure a lot of people would say other books of his were more important. So Peter Singer, he's a a moral philosopher at Princeton, and he specializes in applied ethics. He's a really big utilitarian thinker, has been in the space for quite a long time. A lot of vegetarians might know him for books like Animal Liberation that uh, make a utilitarian case for being vegetarian. 
Effective Altruism is a book that he's written, but it sort of, his work has laid a foundation for it for a much longer period of time, right? So the first piece of his work that I came across as being connected to effective altruism is a 1972 article he wrote called Famine, Affluence, and Morality. And that article essentially argues that if somebody can use their wealth to reduce suffering without any significant reduction to their own well-being, that it's immoral not to do so. And he used a, a drowning children analogy to make that case that if we could save a drowning child and it didn't hurt us in any way, it would be immoral not to do that. And so that article was mostly about calling for the affluent to donate more. So that's sort of like intellectual step number one towards effective altruism. Then in 2009, he writes a book called The Life You Can Save. And that book builds upon that argument to argue that citizens in affluent nations are behaving immorally if they don't act to end the poverty that they know exists in developing nations. And specifically, he's arguing that they should do that by donating to charity. And a key element of that book is that he proposes a minimal, a minimum ethical standard of giving, that people should give at least 1% of their net income to charity. And, you know, that's not an idea that is brand new. We've got tithing or Islamic zakat. You know, these are things that they're ideas that have been historically embedded for a really long time. But from a secular perspective, he puts in place this minimum ethical standard of giving. That's something that is... Um, an idea that effective altruism has kept, uh, although they've kind of upped that amount over time. And so it becomes another building block. Then he writes his big effective altruism book in 2015 called The Most Good You Can Do. Um, and this argues that living an ethical life means doing the most good that you can do. And he argues as well that it requires an unsentimental view of charity. So this is this cost effectiveness argument that we had talked about before. To be a worthy recipient of our support, an organization has to be able to demonstrate that it will do more good with our money and our time than other options that are available to us. So it's always about charitable opportunity costs from this perspective. And, and that's really essential to effective altruism. So second generation of effective altruism, even though they wrote the books at the same time, is William McCaskill. He's a philosopher at Oxford. And he's really famous not only for effective altruism, but also something called long-termism. So whereas Peter Singer is sort of a broader utilitarian philosopher for whom effective altruism is sort of like one argument, and he's, he's more about like trying to take emotion out of how we value lives. So the vegetarianism and effective altruism, like they fit quite coherently together, but that's like a small part of his work. For William McCaskill, effective altruism is a huge part of his work. And that and long-termism are sort of his two big things that he's known for. So his first book is called Doing Good Better. And it was uh, a book that argued for effective altruism and was geared towards popular audiences. He then went on to write What We Owe the Future, which is a book that makes the case for long-termism. Um, and just, we won't talk about long-termism as much as effective altruism because it's not the focus of this episode. But it's important to know, because they're so connected, that it's an ethical stance that gives priority to improving the long-term future. So they'll tend to focus on really sort of catastrophic things. And, you know, increasingly it becomes a focus for, for ridiculous hypotheticals of, like, humans downloaded into the matrix like 3,000 years from now. So long-termism is really not about saving people here and now. It's about saving people generations into the future. Uh, they tend to focus on AI pandemics and climate change. Tech Won't Save Us did an episode on this. So if people want to listen to uh, a critical take on long-termism, Paris Marx did a really good job. I listened to it and I enjoyed it, but I still am like, fundamentally, I think it's fine if you're a long-termist unless you're also a quintillionaire and then that's your only focus at the expense of people alive today, you know? My problem with utilitarians in general is they get way too into their things. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fair critique. <laughs> In general. Right, that brings us actually to the movement of effective altruism, right? Because you have these two main thinkers, but effective altruism has sort of evolved beyond that. Um, it has become a movement that has a bunch of what they call meta-charities. Basically, they're organizations that quantify the most good, they quantify effective charities, and they help you direct your donations to it. So that's basically the role that they play. I'll talk about some of the big ones. 
But another element of that is Silicon Valley, right? The ideology of effective altruism has become quite popular among a certain category of billionaires and grifters like Sam Bankman-Fried. And that ideology has helped to shield some of the tech sector from scrutiny that otherwise might have been applied to their wealth, right? So if we think about the rise in inequality today as being similar to like the robber baron period, where you had a lot of scrutiny against philanthropists and they developed these theories of philanthropy in order to combat that and to make themselves seem like good guys. Effective altruism is today's version of that, I would argue. Oh, yeah, I would say so. Like, it's really easy to, especially with the earning to give model, the idea that, like, I can have this job that pays me $600,000 a year, and as long as I'm giving most of it away, it's okay that I have, like, unseated a democracy in another country or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, and effective altruism, like, I think a lot of the reason that it's so appealing to the public is because when we think about applying it in our own lives, it's not super harmful. There are some harms. We'll talk about those. Um, But the thing to remember is that effective altruism is not for you. Effective altruism is an ideology for high net worth individuals because it's fundamentally about being able to use your financial power. And it's about justifying being high earning because you're you're earning to give, you know? That's maybe not how Peter Singer would think about it, but... <laughs> I don't know if you, you've you probably heard of the 80,000 hours, like, career oh, program yeah. that Effective Altruism, yeah. Tell everybody what it is, because um, I want to go through their career list uh, <laughs> that I found on the website. <laughs> yes, it's a group that emphasizes that the positive impact of choosing a certain occupation should be measured by the amount of additional good that is created as a result of that choice, not by the amount of good done directly policy changers, researchers, engineers, anyone who kind of has the ability to add good to the world should be measuring that good versus what they would do on their own. So if you can afford to pay five people to work for an NGO in another country, it's worth more than you going to work for that NGO in another country. If you're a really good banker, you know what I mean? You should do that and use that money to pay those people to do more work. I would say that their last argument for that would be that anyone in like banking, policymaking, or any like high earning job, and this is I'm sure where Silicon Valley bros love it, is the idea that you should also be changing the culture in other parts of the global economy, right? So if everyone went to work for one NGO that's focused on artificial intelligence protection, which is like their number one issue, then nobody in banking would be trying to shift the conversation. But it's like, is that happening? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, and we'll talk about the hidden curriculum of effective altruism later, um, which could mean you bring those banking bros who are effective altruists into organizations and they teach a bunch of really fucked things. But but let's, let's stick to... 80,000 hours as 80,000 hours. You want to hear some of the top careers on their website? Yeah, I know it's not doctors because they use doctors as not an example many times. Yeah, so doctors aren't on there. The other thing that's not on there is anything to do with climate change, (laughs) social workers, anything like that. The first most number one career that they suggest is AI safety technical research. Shaping the future governance of AI is next. Then they've got some stuff on bio risk. You can be a founder of a project that tackles a top problem. Everybody gets to be a founder. That's an easy thing to do. (laughs) Yeah, you can also help to build the effective altruism community. (laughs) This isn't a cult. This isn't a cult at all. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so this list, I won't go through all 10 because that'll be boring, but they really do focus on AI supporting philanthropy, which I find interesting because it really is like an infrastructure that helps the rich to maintain their power structure. And as well, like vague discussions of how you could be like a policymaker on a global priority, which means almost nothing. So if you're if you're like a, a 17 or 18 year old that wants to change the world and you're looking at this list, what you're not going to do is go into social work and help people in deprived communities. What you're not going to do is study for med school. Like these are jobs that we need. <laughs> Instead, they're pointing people towards like a small number of careers at the very top of the pyramid that like control most of the money in society. Like there there are not a lot of positions available as the founder of a project. There are not a lot of jobs available like in these very niche techie industries. And we have so much need for other much more practical contributions. So the fact that 
websites like this are discounting people who are actually like line workers in improving lives because instead you should be somebody who's rich who controls those jobs. I find that extremely fucked up. There are other organizations. 80,000 Hours is interesting because it's kind of different than the other effective altruism organizations. Um, But some of the other famous ones include The Life You Can Save. So that's the meta charity that Peter Singer founded. And then there's Giving What We Can, which is the meta charity that is um, founded by William McCaskill. So there, there are a couple of others in the ecosystem. But basically, you have a series of organizations that are quantifying um, the good that is done by causes on like a cost-effectiveness basis and how effective your dollar is at saving lives and that are then trying to steer people to donate. And then you have 80,000 Hours, which is trying to do it in a slightly different way by, um, by giving people career paths, but I think doing it in a very problematic way. All right. So what is effective altruism solving? Do you want to take the first crack at this one? What it is trying to do is give people direction on how they can do the most good with their lives. And they're packaging it in a way that's extremely digestible, that's very well marketed, that resonates with us as people who want to continue to live in this capitalistic system and want to be successful without causing harm, which I think is something that as generations grow up under like beneath us as millennials, like it's only becoming more and more of a desire for society. It's like everything I do is hurting somebody. So how can I offset my damage? And how can I do that without impacting my quality of life or the type of job I have? I would I would say that's how I that's my take. I don't know if you have a different one. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a real problem that effective altruism in its sort of best version is trying to address. And that is that people are completely irrational when they give to charity most of the time. Yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, and that leads to super bad decisions in giving to charity. This is like a, a an epidemic of bad giving that we have in society. You know, people give when They're at the point of sale at a grocery store. They have no idea what the organization is, whether it's owned by like the grocery store company or like Tim Hortons or whatever. People give out of social politeness. (laughs) (laughs) People give because they heard about an issue and they care about it for a second, even though they've never looked into it. You know, most giving is not research. And there is some value to the idea of effective altruism that we need to look into it. Uh, And so insofar as the point is basically saying, hey, maybe think a little bit about charitable giving as like part of your moral obligations, that itself I find a valuable contribution. And I want to go through, first of all, a set of critiques that are made about effective altruism itself, and then a set of critiques that are about things that maybe aren't like explicit in effective altruism's approach, but are like underlying arguments or the hidden curriculum of effective altruism. And I will say in this section, I'm borrowing a lot from the work of Jennifer Rubenstein, um, like a philosophy, political philosophy professor at, I think the University of Virginia has done some really good work on effective altruism and on sort of like the ethics of humanitarian NGOs in general. So anyone that's interested should really check out her work. The first critique of effective altruism is really sort of like a situational question. So we've given that example of the guide dog already, right? So let's say your grandma dies. She loved dogs. She would really love it if you donated to a cause that trained guide dogs. That would make her happy. And you, as somebody who really loved your grandmother, decide, yeah, I'm going to do that in honor of her. So effective altruism would say, that's nice. But it's not really a moral action at all. They have no way of distinguishing that as an action that's more moral than buying a luxury good, like a sweater you don't need, you know? And and this essentially is because effective altruism reduces giving to the outcome of a cause. And so that discounts a lot of other reasons that we would donate. So it's not like they would say that's an evil thing to do. They just would say, "Eh, there's no moral value to that. And really, you should have given your money to something else. They can't see that as something that is morally equivalent or morally close to that. So, I mean, this goes back to our to our idea of proximity in giving and like the emotions that are behind giving, right? Um, so effective altruism would argue that the emotions around giving lead to a lot of harms. 
um, and proximity, giving things that are are close to us in some way, you know, that can be a really big problem as like, I think, I think it, it's something that effective altruists acknowledge and I think is really legitimate, right? So insofar as we live in a world where resources are unequally distributed, uh, to the extent that emotion leads us to donate to those clauses that are close to us and the people who have the most money can donate the most, that will perpetuate inequality, right? Um, and we can see that in examples of the rich giving to their alma maters and you know the fact that causes that most affect middle and upper class donors tend to get the most support, whereas like problems that affect primarily the most sort of resource deprived and marginalized tend not to get as many donations. And I think that's a, a completely fair critique of the existing system of charity. But the sort of rational approach that effective altruism is putting forward, I don't think it really solves the problem. It is better to the extent that it like says it treats a life the same. And so there is some sort of equality there. But, you know, it really discounts things like our values, right? We can value justice and fairness, and that has no place in an effective altruist's ideology. Um, and so if we think about giving as something that's not only about what's proximate in our lives, but also as something that reflects our values and we value things like fairness and equality, proximity isn't necessarily something that is regressive at all. It could be progressive, right? Climate change might really matter to me. Um, and so I might choose to donate to a climate justice cause somewhere. And that might not be the most cost-effective per unit donation, but that doesn't mean that it is regressive or that it um, perpetuates inequalities, right? And I think a really telling thing that Peter Singer has said, and I mean, I watched this, I watched him say this in his TED Talk I watched today, is that he thinks that Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett are the most effective altruists who have ever lived. And it's like, of course they are. They have the most money. So objectively, on a math-only <laughs> basis, they would be the most effective altruists because they have had more money than anyone else in history to give away. Yeah. So I think this gets into a second critique of effective altruism. Um, and it's framed differently depending on, you know, which part of the argument you're emphasizing. But this is either the argument that effective altruism is apolitical or that it can't address institutions. So it's often called the apolitical or the institutional critique. And, and this is because effective altruism fundamentally has an aversion to politics, and that leads to an individualist focus on individual welfare, right? So a good example of this is how effective altruism would handle a political donation. There's nothing inherent to effective altruism that would say you can't donate to political causes, but for reasons we'll get into in other critiques, it's likely that it wouldn't be seen as effective because, first of all, we may not be able to quantify the effect of, you know, a political candidate being elected, and it'd be hard to quantify the likelihood of your donation contributing to that. Um, but also because effective altruism can't account for a lot of the reasons that drive political causes, right? Because it can't account for values and it can't account for identity. And those are two big reasons that people support different politicians. But it also neglects interventions that affect large-scale institutions. And that's because they're not readily quantifiable. So we'll talk about the measurement bias a little bit later, but that makes it very difficult to donate to structural causes. Uh, you know, structural change takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, so it's not easy to measure. The results are often indirect and uncertain, right? When you're changing the way that society operates, there's often a lot of unintended consequences. And the individual's contribution to collective action is unclear, right? When we engage in a solidaristic way, it's not always easy to disentangle, did my showing up to this protest impact this law getting passed or not? It's very hard to say whether that's true. And so in practice, effective altruism does not support those causes. That like is a huge blind spot. In addition, as you were getting to, uh, effective altruism neglects the political dynamics of giving. And, and this is particularly poignant for the mega donors that it's speaking to, right? Givers like Bill and Melinda Gates, with a lot of money, have a lot of political and agenda-setting power. And that's something that a lot of critics of, you know, mega donors have really looked into, right? So one really good example of this is how Bill Gates giving has led to an erosion of the public school system in the United States, right? So we have to think about the agenda-setting power of giving as part 
of the consequences that they have, even though that's not readily measurable. Another sort of very fundamental critique of effective altruism that I think we should talk about now is measurement bias. So because effective altruists want to support things that can be empirically shown to do the most good, they focus on interventions that can be readily measured. Um, And this is part of the reason why they focus more on individual welfare than other things like fairness and justice. It's way easier to measure an incremental improvement to individual welfare than incremental improvement in justice or empowerment. It's very hard to measure those things. And so in a certain way, measurement really drives what effective altruists end up supporting, even though like in principle, if you could measure everything, maybe like an ideal type of effective altruism wouldn't have that bias. In its real world application, it does. And there's in particular a focus on comparable and empirically verifiable outcomes. So that means there's a very limited set of activities that an effective altruist can endorse, right? It's often biased towards quantitative measures that can be expressed in comparative terms that relate to life-saving. So those are things like quality-adjusted life years or disability-adjusted life years. And and that's a real problem, um, both because it's ableist, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later, uh, but also because there's no no really good way to... to compare the relative effectiveness of the vast majority of charities. Like, unless you can really reduce it to saving a life, it's incredibly hard to compare one good to another. A charity that distributes vaccines, yeah, they're going to have a relatively easy way of calculating deaths that have been prevented. But that's going to be much more difficult for, say, a group that provides cultural awareness training for those working in First Nations communities. You know, how do you quantify prevented racism? <laughs> how, do you, how do you quantify that? It's really hard. Uh, and so even though we know intuitively that that's something that's valuable, proving what effect it has would require really long-term studies. They'd be practically, they're way too expensive to ever be practical for a charity to undertake. Uh, an effective altruist perspective would see that unit cost be way too high. So in practice, these causes that we know are valuable end up getting ignored, not because they're not valuable, but because they can't be quantified. And so that's one reason that like effective altruism's measure, uh, measurement bias is a really big problem. Some of the most vulnerable people that a charity could serve are also the ones that are the hardest and therefore the most expensive to reach. And effective altruism basically says we shouldn't try. We should instead donate to the lowest hanging fruit because that's cheaper. If not most people are practicing it, if the mega rich aren't practicing it, and if people aren't practicing it super rigidly, maybe that's fine. But if like we're taking this as an ideology for what it is to live a moral life, we presume that everybody should be doing it. In which case, I think it leads to a huge amount of under-resources for things that are quite valuable to fund and we should be giving more money to. So I, I challenge its priorities. Another critique of effective altruism is its capitalist bias. So I found an article by Matthew Duran that I'm drawing from here. It's, I thought it was really interesting, and it argues that effective altruism is a consequence, a form, and also a facilitator of capitalism. So as a consequence of capitalism, effective altruism is largely focused on fixing problems that are caused by capitalism. So it really couldn't exist if capitalism wasn't causing problems like extreme poverty, inequality, climate change. And the problem with that is that rather than trying to solve the fundamental causes of of these problems that are capitalism and its quest for infinite growth in a finite planet, instead, effective altruism is working at the edge to try to plug gaps in the system. Secondly, effective altruism is a form of capitalism. So it's founded on a need to maximize what a unit of resources can achieve. So As with capitalism, it shares maximization as its goal, right? It also shares the same economistic epistemology. So basically, it's this idea that you can quantify two things and you can choose the most efficient option. And so that's what you should do. Capitalism and effective altruism think in exactly the same way about the world. Um, It aims to make the value of human life and ecological preservation and other goods like that fungible so that they're comparative in terms of capital. So it's a form of capitalism fundamentally. And third, it's a facilitator of capitalism. So effective altruism is a fig leaf that makes it easier to mask the capitalist causes of our problems, right? Because it's plugging those holes. And that is important because it allows for the reputation laundering of the rich 
because those metrics of good that they have, you know, if you're Bill Gates, you can say, I've saved X thousand lives. Look how much good I've done. But effective altruism doesn't measure that against the quantifiable harm of their accumulation, right? It's only measuring the good that money can do, not the harm of the unequal distribution that the wealthy are playing into, right? And because it's focused largely on making an impact through dollars, um, it promotes things like earning to give, giving more money, and the cost-effectiveness of giving. These are all related to capitalism as a system fundamentally. I really think if we want to constrain the rules of capitalism, we need theories of participating in society or being moral agents that aren't just about acquiring capital and giving money to sort of plug the holes of capitalism. And that's fundamentally, effective altruism is only about that. And it can't escape those constraints because it is inherently linked to the way that that, that capitalism thinks. Yeah. All right. You got me on that one. Yeah, it doesn't challenge it doesn't challenge the system at all. It props it up and it gives excuses to continue participating in it to the fullest extreme, right? So, yeah. Should we talk about ableism now? Yeah, let's do it. So, uh, effective altruism is incompatible with disability rights. That's a big problem. This argument is something that I got from an article I read by um, Ari Neeman. And he specifically was arguing about something called quality adjusted life years or qualies. Qualies and dollies or disability adjusted life years, they are generic measures of disease burden. So like they exist with a purpose for health researchers. The problem is when you take those measures and you use it to assess the cost effectiveness of giving um, or of medical interventions in general, it becomes pretty gross pretty quickly. So you get one point if you have a year in perfect health, you get zero points for being dead, and imperfect health gets a score between life and death. So that means that using this formula actually assigns a lower score to the value of life of somebody with a disability. You can see how that pretty quickly leads to rationing care away from persons with disabilities, because in an effective altruist framework, extending the life of somebody with a disability results in a smaller return than extending the life of somebody without a disability, which... I think it's really, really, really messed up. <laughs> we don't talk about this enough. <laughs> I, I mean, you really buried the lead on this one. We should have started with that because I probably wouldn't have come out so so heavily swinging in favor of EA, Kristen. I think it it goes back to the like the persuasiveness of effective altruism because here is this like very technocratic measurement tool. Most people are not going to look into the methodology behind it. And if you do, you might not spend the time reflecting on it and thinking, how does this shape the way that we would would value different causes, right? But when you dig into effective altruism, there are all kinds of points where it leads to decision-making that is really out of step with conceptions of justice or morality, right? So I can see why it's persuasive at first look, but the more you dig into it, the more you realize that it pushes money away from some of the things that need money the most and values human life, not in an equal way, but actually in an unequal way. All right, so those are critiques that are based on what effective altruism is sort of saying out loud. But let's talk a little bit about the hidden curriculum of effective altruism, which essentially is like the set of unwritten and unofficial and often unintended values and positions that come along with what's overtly being taught. It's really important to highlight the hidden curriculum as well, because the logic of the effective altruism movement relies on some of these lessons when it's trying to attract and retain you. So that's part of the package that's being sold to people. Jennifer Rubenstein highlights four of them. And so I think that we should just follow what she says. She's very smart. So the first is effective altruists as heroic rescuers, right? So Singer and McCaskill both talk about effective altruism as somebody like running into a burning building or saving a drowning child. There are some advantages to that narrative. It's maybe better than poverty porn because you're focusing on saving, but there are some pretty big drawbacks as well. So the first thing is if you as an effective altruist or somebody who buys into this ideology, see yourself as a rescuer, then the people that you're helping are powerless victims, right? That's how that narrative works. Um, And it, in effect, ignores the agency of people. And so that's a big problem because often the people who are like conceived as the victim in this frame 
populations that are affected by a problem, often have a lot of ideas about how to address the issue, and it would be better if they had more ownership over uh, being able to direct solutions. Another problem with this rescuer image is that if you're a rescuer, then you didn't have a role in creating the problem or benefiting from the systems of injustice that cause the problem, right? You're like this third party that's coming in with a Superman cape and saving the day. But the reality is a bit more like uh, the show The Boys, <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> the people in wealthy countries do benefit from and, and even contribute to issues that cause these problems in countries elsewhere um, or within our own countries. So yeah, heroic rescuers is a problematic part of the hidden curriculum of effective altruism. The second piece of the hidden curriculum is this idea that doing good is an individualistic project. So McCaskill especially sees donors as bargain hunters and self-improvers, right? So as a bargain hunter, we're trying to find that good bargain of donating to poor countries, and we're savvy consumers if we can find one that's going to get more bang for our buck. And on the other side, we're self-improvers, where we're trying to improve our own sort of atomistic moral um, quality, right? We're trying to enhance ourselves, not as a part of a community or a cause, but in this sort of individualist, transactional way. But that's not how progress happens, right? Movements that has historically have done a lot of good um, have acted in a more solidaristic way, and those modes of actions are really hard to see when you're looking through the lens of effective altruism. And, you know, the low-hanging fruit problem of, in, of effective altruism is an element of this, right? Effective altruism focuses on the low cost. And so if you're attracting people on this idea that you can save lives quickly and that can help you to self-improve, once those low-hanging fruit are gone, um, there's a risk they actually lose people if that's the, the way that you're getting them to buy into moral action. Whereas it's much, a much more enduring way to build change if you're trying to build relations of solidarity and to make people understand that like, like we're, we're all part of a community. And so like, there might actually be a, a, a real role for proximity in the moral good of, of giving. Third hidden piece of the curriculum is that doing the most good doesn't require listening to those who are most affected by the issue you're trying to address. So effective altruism talks to people who are relatively well off. And this is a concept that appeals most to people that don't have severe issues to address that are close to them, right? You know, if you immediately had some kind of major problem that you were confronting every day, you'd be focusing on that, not like listening to podcasts about effective altruism. So it is playing for, for like a more, more privileged crowd. And effective altruism as a movement hasn't in any way suggested that the people trying to address the issues should be leaders or equal partners. Um, it's actually out of step with the way that in general humanitarianism is moving, even though it's like quite imperfect. And, and like, I think that's pretty inherent to effective altruism as well because of their concept of cause neutrality, right? Effective altruists have to have this idea that they can cut bait if something more effective comes along. And that makes it impossible to engage in a deep way as like a partner with an, a, like a group that's affected by a problem. If you're, if you can leave tomorrow because something's like slightly cheaper and can save the most lives, you're not going to be a trusted partner with a community that you're dealing with right now. You're just not. And the last thing is that, is this idea that like, because effective altruism tries to play out emotion out of giving, that they're treating anger as an illegitimate response to inequity. So there's not a lot of space for emotion in this sort of rationalist approach that's being taken. And effective altruism sort of sees the world through these lenses of individual welfare causes, and that creates a disconnection from issues of justice, fairness, and empowerment. And, and the reality is that emotion actually matters, right? Emotion, like anger, can be a super useful way of understanding injustice and what's going on in the world, right? It's that libertarian worldview where everything, and that utilitarian worldview, everything is quantifiable, everything is with the logic brain. It's very sexist. Like 1950s, like, Star Trek-style sexist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where, like, if you have an emotion, then you are irrational, right? And that is so problematic because people are supposed to have emotions. It's what makes us different than robots, which is what effective altruists are so afraid of, right? Like... Like, the whole point is that we can use our emotions to experience the world and make choices. And it's that hidden layer that you're talking about where they're not 
you know, saying like, oh, women are irrational, but because emotions are in like very much viewed, especially by people who follow an ideology like this as being feminine, I'm seeing just linkages to toxic masculinity all over this in a way that I didn't before that it's making me very uncomfortable where it's like, put your emotions away and emotions are weakness and you have to use your brain. And that's not good for anybody. (laughs) Yeah. And it leads to like, discounting certain types of knowledge in a way that I think is quite associated with toxic masculinity. So I think that's poignant. I also really like your your idea there of like effective altruists as people who are afraid of the robots and so become them. (laughs) (laughs) That's what's happening here, though, you know, like it's not a stretch to say that these are people who are more likely to be wealthy men who are less likely to be interested in something that maybe an angry woman of color might have to say that they might discount them, especially a woman of color with a disability, right? Like, they're less likely to value that input because they don't think it's rational. Well, and actually, effective altruism, like, inherently discounts that, right? Because it would say, don't listen to the person next to you that's talking about their struggles Instead, donate money thousands of miles away to a cause that's cheaper, you know? So I was looking at the 80,000 Hours podcast. They have like 144 episodes, and they have pictures of all of their guests as like the little icons. So I'm scrolling through trying to find someone who isn't like a rich white dude. And like, yes, there are some of them. Like, it's not every episode, but most of them for the first like 60 episodes that I scrolled through, that's who's talking, right? And it's like... You cannot quantify your way out of listening to other people who are probably going to call you out on your bullshit. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so I guess, what are our conclusions? Is the solution real? No real? (laughs) How it's being used is very toxic, the way that you've pointed out in ways that I hadn't even considered. Like, I had considered quite a few of the problems going in, and I was still like, I'm gonna be an optimist. But it's too toxic. I like the idea that you can pick a problem and make it your thing. That's something that I saw people talking about quite a bit, which is pick a problem, make it your thing. Either work in an industry that is bad for that problem and change the culture around it while donating all of your money, or work in that industry directly in a way that helps. Whatever it is to you, that's fine. I think like for a normal person, that's not a terrible goal to have. I also still think it's fine if anyone participating in like the idea of donating where your money does the most good, like that's fine as long as you're not also like buying a yacht and a second mansion, <laughs> you know, like I think what appeals to the common person with effect altruism is the idea of like voluntarily redistributing your wealth, which is what it sounds like in the marketing. But as we've just discussed for the last like hour, it's not what's fundamentally happening. Yeah. And also I would say... All of those good things that you pointed out, not one of them is inherently tied to effective altruism. Those are all ideas that existed before effective altruism. And I would argue in a lot of cases, like this notion of picking a cause and sticking with it, that actually doesn't really follow the precepts of effective altruism in its like intellectually pure sense. So <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say no real, not a real solution. <laughs> So let's think a little bit about what could make it better. Because, I mean, we talked about earlier, there, there is a real critique that effective altruism starts from, right? There is a huge amount of improvement that could be made in how the average person thinks about donating to charity and participating morally in general. So what are some lessons that we can take from effective altruism? Transparency, transparency. There needs to be more transparency in organizations that you might want to donate to, in organizations that you shop with, in organizations that you work for. The reason that effective altruism feels so good to people is it's a way for you to do good and know that you're doing good because you are aiming your attention at something that is quantifiable. Nice little quantitative security blanket. Yeah. And like, and, 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 and that desire is coming from this opaqueness that we live in, not knowing like the supply chain that the fish on your table came through. Like how many, how many countries did that fish pass through? Was it actually 
like fished from a farm or or was it like wild caught like the package said and even if it was wild caught how much damage did that do what kind of trawling boat were they using like there's just no way to know and so this thirst for wanting to do good I get it (laughs) yeah and I think there's like for a long time we've had this really appealing idea that if we quantify enough stuff we can distill the complexity of the world into an equation and get the answer, right? I mean, I think about like Isaac Asimov's foundation series is like a really good envisioning of that, right? This idea that social science eventually gets so good that you can tell the future through an equation. That's just not the reality that we live in. And I think effective altruism by pretending to have those answers it it ends up missing a lot of really important things. And so you think that you've got this surefire solution, but instead it's it's wrong in all kinds of ways that people can't even see because they're focused on this precept. But I think you're right that like there there transparency is a really good way to, to make it better. And also like as a person, I think we can step back a little bit and say, okay. I don't like the wonky ways that effective altruism goes about this, but I like this idea that maybe when I'm giving to charity, I should pay some attention to effectiveness or, or outcomes or, you know, what they're really doing. I should research the charity just a little bit first. <laughs> <laughs> That's a totally harmless way of applying effective altruism's like broad idea. Yeah, you can think about effectiveness a little bit when you're researching. Don't obsess about specific measures of cost effectiveness or any or overhead or anything like that. But research the organization you're supporting. Maybe give some thought to what causes might especially need your help right now. And I would say, in addition to that, approach donating as a relationship that you have with an organization that matches your values. And that's very different from the way that effective altruism would think about it. But I think that that's really inherent to shaping a world that is in the image of what you want to see. Find an organization that matches the thing you care about, the values that you have. Maybe it's multiple organizations if you want to. And set up a monthly donation. Consider volunteering with that organization. And remember that there are other forms of civic participation. So if that organization, you know, let's say, is working towards helping people who have experienced domestic violence, you can help by promoting legislative changes as well that would protect women, right? If that's what you care about. It's not just through giving and volunteering, but you also have to be part of civic life, right? If you really want to be as moral a person as you can, that means engaging politically too. And for most of us, you know, like effective altruism really isn't for us. For most of us, participating in democratic processes is actually the best way that we can have impact on society because we are not going to have enough dollars to really have the impact that a Bill Gates can have. So instead of thinking about what dollar value might be the, the most important, think about how you can help your community be fairer and more equal through signing petitions, volunteering with organizations, showing up at protests, writing your like member of parliament or council or whatever. Please, 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 please do not earn to give. Just don't. Uh, remember that there are lots of ways to improve the world without spending money and capitalism is at the root of a lot of our problems. So if you are setting your entire damn career based on something that is inherently tied to a capitalist ideology that like more money equals more moral good, that's messed up. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for covering this topic with me, Kristen. You know that it's one that I've been pestering you about forever. So... (laughs) really pleased to finally sit down and chat about it for an hour. I learned a lot. I hope our listeners did too. And we'll catch them on the next episode.